0: Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now enjoy the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today, you will be listening to Ariel Roldan, Pastor of the Cadillac and Lake City Seventh-day Adventist Churches in the Michigan Conference. And now, here's Pastor Ariel.
1: Glad to see you this morning. I'm excited to continue with a series that, uh, last time I shared this in the previous church district that I was in, it did bring a personal revival to my own home, my own marriage, myself as a Christian. And I've been eager to be able to share these things with you. What Holly said is true. Some people may think, "Oh no, I um, should have gone to somewhere else because they're going to talk about marriage, and I'm single. I'm a widow. I'm a divorcee, or whatever." But what Holly said is true. Marriage is just one another form of a relationship, and the marriage covenant is actually teaching us the core principles of how friendships, relationships work. Actually, you want to marry your friend, and so it—the idea of friendship. And understanding what that means and how it works, this will apply. And, and if you're married, I hope you will get a blessing. Some of you may be looking at me saying, "You're a whippersnapper still. You're still 13 years. You know, you're still wet behind the ears. Wait till you're getting your 40 years of marriage. Yada yada." I know this much: you may be 40 years married, but you ain't no expert at it. Because we're always learning, right? So I'm praying that all of us will approach the Word of God with humble hearts and a willing spirit to be taught by the Word of God this morning. Amen? So let's bow our heads and let's have God speak to each of our hearts, to our friendships and our marriages. Precious Father, this is a very special subject to you. Father, when you were done with creation, you blessed humanity with a relationship called marriage. And throughout all these millennia of sin, if there's one area, Father, where the adversary, the world under the control of the enemy has sought to continually destroy, continually attack and dismantle, has been the family. And there's only one way to get to the family, Lord, and that is to get to the husband and the wife. So, Father, I pray that we will not just learn, but be convicted, be revived transformed by the preaching of your holy word. I pray that your spirit would speak to each of our hearts with power, power to revive, power, Lord, to anchor our marriages on that rock, the only rock, your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen, Father. In the title of the sermon, I thought about changing it many times because I thought it sounds already a bit on the dry side, the law of the marriage covenant. So if I were to be asked on the day that I married Dalene, by Pastor Mark Swicewood, Ayel, do you guys want your marriage to be under the law of God or under the grace of God? That's right, grace. So the title with The Law of the Marriage Covenant already kind of sets us like, I don't know if I'm going to like this one. This one sounds like one of those sermons that you got to try harder or you're going to feel really guilty about yourself. The challenge is that All of us have, Christianity has struggled from the onset of sin, we've struggled with the role of the law of God and the grace of God. And as I've said, and we talked about last Sabbath, to a great degree, the enemy has been successful at pitting against each other things that are not enemies, like faith and science. The the secular world tells us that if you are a man or woman of faith, you cannot be a true woman or man of science. That's a lie. Newton was a man of faith, a great man of faith, and a great man of science. There's been others as well, even to today. And for many Christians, the idea that the law of God is against the grace of God is also a misconception, it's also a lie. And so this morning, we want to kind of wrestle with this. And of course, we do want our marriages to be under God's grace, but what does it mean to be under the grace of God? So I'm going to give you a bit of an illustration as we begin what would it mean for a wife clicking on their bank account online to discover something she had not noticed before, a separate bank account that she discovers accidentally that her husband has had for several years and he's been funneling money into that bank account without letting her know about it. And it's not just his money that he's been funneling into this secret bank account. Her money as well has been going into this secret bank account that he's never told her about. How should she relate to her marriage then? If we want our marriage to be under the canopy of grace, what does that look like at those moments when we discover secrets? What about the husband who unexpectedly comes home to find his wife embracing another man? How would grace relate to the situation? And I'm going to ask your feedback. Two options. How would grace relate to the husband with the secret bank account or the wife with the secret relationship? Would grace say, this is option A, would grace say, they have done nothing wrong really. Who hasn't made a mistake before? Didn't Jesus say to cast no stones at anyone? Is that grace? It's option A. Option B, Grace would say, this is sin. It brings death. You are at the brink of the precipice. One more step and you'll be in current that will drag you down into death. Thank you for that story. Very appropriate. Because we struggle with the father yelling at the child, stop.
2: We think that's law, that's legalism. No, that's
1: grace. That's grace. The law has never been against grace. The law has been the means by which grace gets placed into our hearts. So grace would say, this is sin, this brings death. You, husband with a secret bank account, you, wife with a secret relationship, you need Jesus' forgiveness and cleansing and healing. These attitudes, these values, these priorities, these behaviors, they need to go out of this marriage. Would grace say A or would grace say B? B. So innately, we understand experientially that grace is not against the law. But unfortunately for many Christians, because of the way that the gospel has been presented to them, they have come to see the law as something that they need to stay as far away from as possible. And to a great degree, listen carefully. Our theology doesn't just stay in the church. It affects how we live our everyday life. And if, if inside of me I have a hard time reconciling grace and law, and if in my mind, in my convictions, because I want to be under the grace, I need to stay as far away from the law, I will have a very dysfunctional religion very dysfunctional, non-working faith. And when I try to apply that to my everyday life, I will not know what a marriage looks like under the grace of God. I will either become an abuser or a facilitator
2: of abuse, a codependent.
1: Grace does not allow for either one. God wants to bless our friendships, our relationships. Amen? Amen. And he wants to bless it with grace. What does grace look like? Some verses real quick. My favorite book in the Bible, Romans 3.31 says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, what do we do through faith? We establish the law. Romans 6.15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly. And the Bible is pretty simple. The Bible is not a complicated book. We are the complicated ones that bring our complexity into the Bible. Is telling a lie sin? How do you know that? What part of the Bible? What part of the Bible does it say, thou shalt not bear false witness? It's murderous sin. So we know that Paul is saying here, shall we lie because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly, is Paul pitting grace and law against each other? No, he is saying grace brings the law inside of you. Grace is the only means by which you will not bear false witness. The grace of God is the only means by which you will not have any other gods before the Lord. That's what it means that by faith we establish the law. We don't make it void. Romans eight four eight four, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled where. In us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the It is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that brings the grace of God and makes it a living reality in me, in my life and in my marriage and in my relationships. And far from removing the law from my life, it empowers me to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. How many of you guys want to walk and be guided by the Holy Spirit? You want the Holy Spirit guiding your life? The Holy Spirit will make it very simple for you. The Holy Spirit will offer the power you do not have to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. The Holy Spirit, faith, and grace, they are not against the law of God. They put the law of God where it needs to be. The scripture reading that we read Hebrews 10, 15 through 16. Here again, we walk in the Spirit, right? We're guided by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he, the Holy Spirit, has said before. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my what? My laws? Where? And in their minds, I will Emphasis on I will. I will, I will, I will, because he's the only one that can. And God does this through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a brief study. If you have more questions, if you're like hold up a second. I've always heard that we are new covenant Christians, and we are no longer under the law, but under grace. And you're wrestling with this. I hope that these scriptures will begin to help you understand that Nowhere in the Bible do you see that the grace of God nullifies the law of God. Rather, the problem is where the law gets written. The law on my outside brings me death and condemnation. But there's no human effort to take the law. I cannot write it in my heart. When I come with repentance, brokenness, and dependence, And I cry out for forgiveness and cleansing and deliverance. God wipes away all of my sins, 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But God doesn't just stop there. God knows that I'll go back to the same filth he pulled me out of unless he does a miracle, the miracle of grace. And the miracle of grace is that he begins to write in my heart and in my mind, inside of me, he begins to what? Write his laws. What Holly said, I'm glad she felt impressed to say, is, is we have divided the law of God this way. And it's not wrong. The first five commandments, four commandments, are a relationship to God. The fifth commandment about parents is the bridge between the two sections. And the second section relates to our relationship with humans. But It's inseparable, really, the Ten Commandments. If I have a really crummy relationship with humans, I'm going to have a pretty crummy relationship with God. And if I have a pretty crummy relationship with God, I'm going to have a pretty crummy relationship with humans. Does that make sense? So what Holly said, I think, was guided by the Holy Spirit, same as the children's story, in this sense. The Ten Commandments affect my relationship with God. And the Ten Commandments affect my relationship with humans around me. So in the same way that I can learn things about how the Ten Commandments teach me to relate to God, I can also transpose that and apply it to how the Ten Commandments can apply to one of the more core foundations of our society, marriage. In the same sense that the Ten Commandments can help me understand how to relate better to God, Those same Ten Commandments will empower me to understand how human relationships work. The law of God begins with having no other gods. And we talked about this last Sabbath, the total commitment. That is the same concept. Total commitment, no other gods, exclusive commitment. After God, no other person more important than my spouse. There is just no one else that would take that place. So that means that, I will try not to make any false images. The same way that we try to make God into calves and beetles and cats and things like that, we are tempted, we want our husbands to be made into our image of the kind of husband I want. Versus trusting God to transform my husband into the man I need. Does that make sense? We want our wife to live up to our expectations of what the perfect wife I want versus trusting God in bringing into my life the woman that I need. And so in marriage, much of the conflict is the husband trying to make the wife into his image of what she should be like. And the wife trying to, through nagging and nyah, 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 to change the husband into the image she feels the husband needs to be. And much of the contention comes in the wife trying to do that to your husband and the husband trying to do that to the wife. Instead of trusting God to transform your wife, you're making your wife an idol. You are making your husband an idol. And you're obsessing and investing much of the energy that it could be in surrendering and connecting yourself to the Lord. You're investing that energy in trying to shape him and carve him into the kind of man you know he needs to be. Husbands, let us clear the air right now.
2: Can our wives change us?
1: Maybe I should have asked this with the wives not present.
2: <laughs>
1: Some of the husbands are like going, but I want to sleep in my bed tonight, Pastor. <laughs> the truth is, wives, heart as much as effort as you may put into trying to change us, you can't. You may be able to modify some behaviors, but men will submit to your request so that there's no fighting and strife You don't want a husband that is only obliging to you externally. But the moment you are out of the picture, yeah, when you're with the wife, you eat raw broccoli, the wife disappears, you're eating Dunkin' Donuts by the dozens. Right? Do you want a husband that only abides by your image when you're present? That's the children of Israel relating to God on Mount Sinai. We just read this, in, if you haven't been reading the Bible through with us, you're missing a tremendous blessing, and if you would like to, please talk to me afterwards. It's been a blessing for me. God sends 10 plagues, parts to sea, gives them manna, goes to Mount Sinai, Only 40 days. And because they don't see and hear from God, they go back to the golden calf. And they want to go back to Egypt.
2: They were only changing externally. So dear wives,
1: listen carefully. Invest your energies better. Stop trying to change your husband. You want your husband to change? Start praying with him more regularly. And don't preach to him when you pray. Just pray for him. Read the scriptures. Because who is the one that writes the laws in the heart? Who is the only one that can do that? God. And husbands, stop trying to change your wives as well. You can't. No human can change, redeem, or save another human being. Does that make sense? So the same application that we have in relationship to the grace and law of God is the same application for human relationships. This is secular articles that I found very interesting. This is from a New York Times. John Tierney was reflecting on his single professional colleagues that were entering into their 30s and 40s and wouldn't marry. The title of the article is The Big City, Picky, Picky, Picky. and. John Tierney recounts many of the reasons his single friends told him they had given up on their recent relationships. She mispronounced, can you guys pronounce this? Gota. It's German. I had to look it up. I Googled this. (laughs) Found a YouTube, a German guy pronouncing it for me. It's a German philosopher. But a guy broke up a relationship because the lady he was considering could not pronounce Gota. Praise the Lord. Hey, that's what I thought. (laughs) How could I take him seriously after seeing The Road Less Traveled on his bookshelf? Let me check out your place. Road Less Traveled.
2: Bye. If she would just lose seven pounds.
1: Picky, picky, picky. Sure, he's a partner in the firm, law firm, but it's not a big firm. Man, and he wears those short black socks. Well, it started out great. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused ominously and shook his head. She had dirty elbows. Picky, picky, picky.
2: We humans love to make images of what we think we want completely living our
1: lives ignorant of what we actually need. And we do the same thing with God. God, we want you to be a calf. And I used to wonder why a cow, until I understood a little bit about Indian culture, why they worship cows. They see cows as the source of nourishment because it produces milk. They see the cow as a source of fuel because they use the dung to warm and heat their food and cook and things like that. They see the cow as the great provider of life. Therefore, I worship it. We love to make images. And if there's one place where you and I are continually being tempted into making an image, it is in our marriages. And the Bible says, you shall not make a graven image. Stop trying to be so picky with the person you've given us and start developing more gratitude for the wife or the husband God's given you. To conduct a me-marriage, which everything we talked about, idolatry, is predicated on deep selfishness. To conduct a me-focused marriage requires two completely well-adjusted, happy individuals with very little in the way of emotional neediness of their own or character flaws that need a lot of work. The problem is, there's almost no one like that out there for to marry. This will require indeed a woman who is a novelist slash, slash astronaut with a background in fashion modeling. My mom was right. And be careful. The older you get, the pickier you get. And pretty much, pretty soon you'll want someone that doesn't exist. And you're not that person at all either. See, the, the frustration with idolatry is that if I talk to a rock, I'm convinced the rock will provide something for me because I've shaped it now in the, the shape of Thor or Neptune or whatever. Just protect me from the storms. Protect me in my boat. Protect. But it's a rock. I'm talking to a rock. I'm talking to a tree that's been chopped down and shaped into something else. I'm talking to planets out there that have nothing, no bearing to do with my life. I'm guided my life by shapes that someone else has constructed, a Taurus, a Pisces, all those things. Does that have any effect on my life? Can trees provide rain and nourishment for me? Every idol we
2: create fails us. And all of these
1: things that we think we need fail you. Are you disappointed with your husband this morning? Chances are you've been trying to make an image out of him. And he is not fulfilling your needs.
2: Because no idol ever will.
1: Goes with the wives as well. with the husband's disappointed with their wives. No taking the name of God in vain. That word vain is the same word in some of the Psalms that used to describe idols. But in general, it means nothing. Don't take God's name like a nothing with disdain, with no value. And of course, in a relationship, this commitment requires us to honor our spouses in public and private. We cannot use humor to demean or belittle our loved ones, and then say it was only a joke. When my wife and I got married, at first there's cultural things we sometimes use in humor. Sometimes needs to be there are certain kinds of humor that need to be repented of. You shouldn't make fun of your wife in public. You shouldn't make fun of your husband in in public, private or public. If you're accustomed to making fun of something that your husband does or something that your wife does, I'm encouraging you to leave that kind of humor out. Because when we first got married to the lean and she would share some jokes, I would tell her, we always have a little bit of truth in those jokes. It's the passive-aggressive way of saying that we don't like something, so we add humor to it. And Satan will use those jokes to create real wounds. Your spouse may laugh, but inside, they're crying. So taking God's name in vain, in the same way, we cannot take the marriage vow in vain by saying, well, I know your weaknesses and I know your failures, and I'm going to use humor to poke at that. That kind of humor needs to be repented of. cannot be in the marriage. Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Valentine's is coming up, right? There's nothing more costly, more valuable, or of more personal worth that you can give your spouse than your... Does that make sense? It's better than chocolate. It's better than flowers. It's better than a vacation. It's better than a new car. It's better than any of those things. Those things temporarily fulfill and give joy. But if you're lavishing your spouse with gifts,
2: but you're not giving them your time, you're starving
1: your marriage. The same way that individuals think that they can come to church on Easter or once a year or Christmas and live as a Christian by not fellowshipping and not worshiping God on a regular basis, that's what Sabbath is about. It's about us reconnecting and recalibrating and coming into God's presence in a very intentional way. Putting aside all things to focus exclusively on him. Time with my wife requires time with my wife. Which kind of challenges us in some of the things that we do. Like the husband will say, honey, i want to spend time with you this Sunday. It's the Super Bowl. we want to watch it together. <laughs> We're going to spend some quality time not looking at each other for 90 minutes, looking ahead. Not looking at each other. How was your week? Wait, wait, wait. After this game, after this this Is that spending time together? No. Our society, take the pandemic and throw it out the window, we have been an isolated society for decades. The moment the television was invented, or actually maybe even the radio, our societies have been slowly impoverishing our families from the nutriment that can come from Family union, conversations, time spent together. Television, the internet, the endless source of entertainment and media, media consumption. Everybody has their own tablet. Everybody has their own phones. They're all disconnected. They're all in their own little world. But we're together. It's like being in church and being on the phone the whole time, right? It's like being in church, but your mind is somewhere else already. You're at work. You haven't punched out you're already thinking about your next shift. You're already thinking about what's going to have to be do next. You're thinking about your bills. How are you going to pay this and how are you going to pay that? We, because of our sinful fallen nature, we gravitate towards image-making and we gravitate towards giving our most valuable to the most worthless. We will give years of our lives to a job from which we will retire from someday and we'll never be whatever we were at that time. And yet we neglect our children that one day will be out of our homes. I catch myself continually, and my daughters have been trained from my wife that we're going to have worship. My youngest daughter takes my phone and puts it far, far, far away. Because we've been in the middle of worship.
2: Bzz, bzz, bzz. Bzz, bzz.
1: Oh, let me answer this one, Daddy. You're not a brain surgeon.
2: They won't die. Daddy, we want you here.
1: By the grace of God, that law has been written in my heart. God wants you to give him a day. Not because he's selfish, but because you need it. You and I need a day completely in the presence of God. Fellowshipping with fellow believers. We need that. And your marriage needs time. And if you've been working too long, if you've been working too late, if you've been allowing the, the rhythm of this world to set the rhythm and pace of your life, that you're not spending time with your spouse, even at sacrifice. Ministry, sometimes I'm answering emails or hanging up. Last night I was on, on the phone till almost 10 o'clock. But even if I do that, I will seek to spend time with lean. And even if we have to spend time till midnight or one o'clock in the morning, We seek for that on a regular basis because marriages that fail to spend time with each other are marriages that are starting to experience a weakening in the bonds that will sustain you through the years. We need to say time, it is the most valuable asset that we have. Under your father and your mother. We kind of talked about this in the first sermon. As married persons, we assume responsibility for our parents, but no longer to our parents. We must establish consistent and clear boundaries with our parents, if they are the kind of parents that have a hard time with boundaries. No murder. We are commanded to renounce hatred and destructive anger. This also forbids us from provoking them to anger by criticizing their appearance, speech, actions, or decisions. You know, you don't have to kill someone physically to kill them emotionally. You can kill someone's personality with constant beratement and criticism. I've been spared by the grace of God from a very angry young lady. I didn't get to know her too much. That's the parallel of having long-distance relationships. But I'm thankful that that relationship never materialized. And I remember reading, the context was a young lady. Want to know how this young man will treat you as a young lady in in the marriage covenant? Look at how the young man treats his mom. That was from a book called Adventist Home. But the reversal is just as true. You want to know how a young lady will treat you as a husband? Examine how that young lady talks to her dad publicly. Is she respectful? Is she kind? Is she patient? Don't think that the way she treats her dad will be different than the way he treats you. Any more than the way he treats his mom will be any different than he treats you. God's grace can change, but that's a risk that we have to measure. Angry individuals, we have to relate to that because Jesus equated anger with murder. Forgiveness is core and forgiveness is a must. Yes, we have to forgive. But we also have to hold accountable. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You can forgive, but you do not have to endorse. You can forgive, but you have to create boundaries. A wife, when I was in Bering Springs, approached me and she told me about her husband, who would be very cruel with her words to her. He's a good man, does anger issues, and demanded intimacy. What do I do, Pastor? I took her to the Bible and I told her if you read Genesis chapter 3, you see that God forgave Adam and Eve because he gave them robes. There was a sacrifice. God forgave them. But God also said, You have to leave the garden. You have made choices that have violated the relationship that you and I were in. I have made a way for you to return to the garden. I want you back in the garden but right now you can't stay in the garden. And until your husband makes some changes, he cannot make demands of you until he makes the necessary changes that will allow him to come back into that kind of a sphere. Thankfully, she did what I counseled her, and within a few months, the husband was very sweet and kind. Boundaries are wonderful. God allowed, he put a, a fiery sword, not because he's an angry God, but because he's a loving God of grace. Forgiveness is core. Forgiveness is a must. Colossians 3.13 Bear with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Forgiveness has to be part of the marriage experience. No adultery. This summons us to be faithful in our marriage covenant by refraining from illicit sexual acts. And only acts? Thought life as well. This involves not seeking sexual experiences outside of marriage, not allowing the attractiveness of members of the opposite sex to become deliberate fantasies of intimacy in our minds, repulsing thoughts of sexual lust or perversion, and refusing to be sexually stimulated by erotic books, films, or any other media. There's something about this commandment that has, as we spoke last Sabbath, been cast at the wayside pretty much by most of our society. Even the terminology, to to refer to the act, some people call it making love, which is an extremely false statement. Humans cannot manufacture love. We can't make it. What sex is, is a way to express love. That's it. The act of sexual intimacy between a married couple, the only role it plays is to express something that's already there. The problem with our society and the emptiness and hellowness that has accompanied this act is that there is no commitment, there is no relationship, but there's a lot of expressing nothing. I thought about this. Choosing to view sex as the beautiful gift God has given you to express self-giving love to your spouse. Sex will never be the end goal of the relationship, but always the means of expressions of the love and lifelong commitment in the relationship. I thought about this. This is the, the
2: illustration that I thought of. When you,
1: well, this, now we do email and text. I did write letters for the lien and we would give it to each other when we saw each other. And I wrote a poem for her. I'll share that poem with you at another sermon. But imagine that You know, Delaney was in Columbus, Ohio. I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I would drive six hours, and I would give her this big, fat envelope. She would say, oh, it's a lot of pages in here. I can't wait to read this. And she goes back to her college dorm at Ohio State, and she opens it up. And it's all blank pages, just blank pages. And then I call her that evening and say, hey, you haven't texted me or said anything about the letter that I gave you. What do you think of it? Did it move you to tears? Did it touch your heart? Did it move you? What is the link going to say? The pages are empty. See, sex is a blank piece of paper. Until you write something on it, you're saying nothing. So all the couples that go out on the weekends, all the people that go out on clubs and My friends and the frenzy that when I was in high school, all my friends seemed to want to experience this. Our society has been sold one of the biggest shams in Earth's history. That the greatest commodity on this planet is sex. And we become a sex-obsessed society, almost like if it was oxygen. It's a blank piece of paper. And the only things worth writing on that piece of paper is a commitment founded upon a love that can only come from God. Because you love God so much, because I see why you're not perfect. I love you and your dirty elbows and your short black socks. Because you love Jesus, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Because I see how much God can use us together we are better together than if we were apart because you're so passionate about the Lord, because you strive. Yes, you slip and sometimes you make mistakes, but I see you pressing towards the goal. I want to partner with you. I want to be your friend. I want to encourage you. And I want you to encourage me because I'm also sometimes struggle. The more I get to know you, I like that song. The more I walk along with my spouse, the more, the sweeter they get. Hopefully the sweeter I get too. <laughs> the sweeter the experience gets. Then sex is a letter written like I used to, you know, in the corners, in the edges. I couldn't feel enough kisses and I love yous on the letter. Every space taken up to express how much I cared and loved and appreciated this woman. But without that, What is sex? It's a lie. It's sending someone an envelope with perfume and lots of stickers, and then when they open it, there's nothing there. And our society is starving. Like I said, it's one of the most disconnected societies in Earth's history. No stealing, we must not deprive our spouse of their right to make decisions by one spouse taking control of the finances, usually the breadwinner. We must not use financial limitations, in the example of a stay-at-home mother, as vulnerabilities to be exploited or used as bargaining chips. Is that statement making sense, church? You can't say, we live in this house by the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rule. Jesus makes the rule of marriage, and not gold. We must not steal our spouse's dignity by stealing their individuality and freedom. There are some religions, there are some denominations, and I'm not going to name them. That when a wife and a husband get married, they will say things like, the husband is the head of the wife. They forget the part that says, and Christ is the
2: head of the husband. Because if Christ is the head of the husband,
1: the husband will love his wife the way Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. They misquote the Bible to say, the man has the last word. and Everything he says in the house goes and the wife just has to submit to him and bend her will and lose her individuality and lose her personality and you don't dare question your husband. That's not biblical. That is spiritual abuse. And it's been preached from pulpits. And it has made many thinking women say, if that's how God defines marriage, then I don't want nothing to do with marriage or God. And Satan has used a horrendous misapplication and interpretation of scripture to turn the hearts of not just women, but men. Men thinking, I don't want my dad treating my mom like that, and I don't want to end up like that. If that's what Christianity is about, then I don't want nothing to do with it. No stealing. God has allowed you to spend some time on planet Earth with another individual, not for you to sap all that that person is, all their aspirations and goals, and submit them to your will, to your tiny limited brain. You cannot steal someone else's personality. That is a God-given gift. If your wife likes to paint, if your wife likes to sing, if your husband likes to write music, if your husband likes to build, if your husband likes to fish, you have no right in taking that away. (laughs) Amen, says Bruce (laughs) and Lloyd. (laughs) No bear false witness. We break this commandment when we speak evil to others about our spouse. We misrepresent their motives. We misquote their words out of context. And this one, right? Well, we're in a very heated argument with our spouse. Satan reminds us of conversations, but in snippets. Parts of conversations. And you will throw words back at your spouse, but you said that. And my wife and I have had, by the grace of God, been able to stop and say, pause a second. Father, we have very prejudiced minds. We remember what we want to remember. But you see the whole thing. Can you please show us the entire videotape unedited? Because Satan is showing me little snippets of what my wife said, and it's making me angry. And in the dialogue, we begin to realize, oh, there was a context to that statement. And when we look at the context, that statement doesn't mean what that statement means by itself. Is that making sense, church? Satan will love to remind you of something your wife said or your husband said and then poke at your pride and you'll misquote them and you will throw their words at their face feeling fully justified, not aware that you are bearing false witness.
2: That quarry is a very real experience.
1: And all of these commandments that we have spoken of is a fence that God puts, not even at the edge. He puts it like 80 feet away from that quarry. He doesn't even want us close to that. If you're not being intentional at diminishing the amounts of quarrelings and fightings that are in your marriage, if you're thinking every marriage fights, we'll just like everybody else, we fight, you know, because we fight, because we're married. Listen, my friend, God does not want you to have those experiences in your marriage. We have them because we are imperfect, but God wants the experience to get sweeter and sweeter. Amen? How many want their experiences to be sweeter and sweeter? See, we may say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, but he can't fix my marriage. If you don't believe God can fix your marriage, how can you believe Jesus died and rose again? Paul says, I want to know this from experience. I want to know the power of Christ, the power of the resurrection. I want this man that is dead in trespasses and sins to be empowered by the grace of God so that the arguments and the miscommunications and the misquotes and the judging motives and criticizing efforts to improve and bringing stuff from the past. And when that person says, I'm sorry, I bring stuff that I said that I've forgiven them seven years ago, I'm still throwing it in their face and trying to discourage and Show how bad and evil they are. Here, that's who you are. I need to repent from all of that.
2: Marriage. God,
1: this side of Eden, marriage is not to make you happy. God has designed marriage to make you holy, to sanctify you, to reveal the selfishness in your heart, the pride that so easily grows inside of you. How easily you can connect the dots to create arguments to defeat your husband you feel good because you defeated him with arguments. He forgets stuff. He can't remember what he did last week. I want to take advantage of that because I can remember everything. What are you accomplishing?
2: You're living in marriage contract.
1: And though you may not never divorce your spouse, you will divorce your spouse internally. You will check out. He has his world, I have my world. He has his bank account, he does what he wants with his money. I do what I want with my money, but we're married. Not in God's eyes. No bearing false witness, we must learn to listen and to make sure you're focused on what's being said and not what you think the other person is going to say, nor on what you're going to respond. You must learn to ask questions. And being as clear as possible before responding. We may be able to temporarily modify behaviors, but God, only God can transform the heart, which is coveting. To close, I want us to have our batteries on because I'm going to drill you on a biblical story. And I want to show you guys that all of these commandments do apply to our relationships. And the quarry is real. You know, with the Ten Commandments, I grew up Christian, and I thought, God has placed them in a weird order. In my mind, I'm thinking, you start with the least offensive to the really bad stuff, kind of build up to it, kind of like climax. This is the really bad stuff you need to stay away with. And for me, in my mind, murder is that big one. Murder is the worst thing you could ever do to somebody else, right? But that's the Sixth Commandment. God finishes the Ten Commandments with this one. It's like, this is the weakest one. So I'm going to tell you a story, and you guys will tell me the order of things from the story of David and Bathsheba. How many are familiar with that story? So this will also help us to understand how familiar we are with the Ten Commandments. This is the Tenth Commandment. The Bible says that David was in his palace. He should have been fighting the wars with the other kings, but he lingered free time. Most of our regrets are born on free time. And he gazes and he sees a woman bathing. And what does David do at that moment? Covets. Now, it's just coveting. So he asks, who is that woman? And they tell her that's Uriah's wife. And what does David do? Oh, quarry, stay away. Is that what David does? He gets a little closer and says, bring her to me now he's bearing false witness because the servants have just said, that is Uriah's wife, one of your soldiers. And the way David relates to her is as if she's not married. What does he do with Bathsheba? Did Bathsheba belong to him? Belong to someone else, right? And that's the parable that Nathan the prophet brought about the little lamb.
2: What does David do? It's adultery.
1: What does he end up doing? And this is where the prophet Nathan catches him. Don't think that Satan is not after your marriage. Don't think for one second that Satan wants you to have a covenant marriage. And if you've been careless with your prayer life, and if you've been careless with your time in the Word of God, how in the world can God write His law in your heart? And if you do not have God's law in your heart, what restraints do you have against the attacks of the enemy? God's greatest blessing in your marriage goes in your heart. Not in the garage. It's not Alexis. God's greatest blessing in your marriage is not a bigger house, Or a jacuzzi is not more money, is not early retirement. God's greatest blessing in your marriage is in your heart. He wants to write His laws in your heart and in your mind. How many want to receive this blessing this morning? Father in heaven, I want this. There's no one here, no one, that is not a target to the adversary. Even single individuals As a single man, I developed so many wrong habits, Father, that I had to eradicate when I got married. I should have dealt with those long before. Self-centeredness, selfish, things my way. So, Father, whether we're single or married, we need this miracle of your grace in our hearts this morning. Forgive our careless words. Forgive our times of neglect with time. Time that should have been given to our marriage we have given to television, to programs, to sports, to people, to jobs, overtime, money. Time that should have been given to nourish a hurting marriage. And Father, we're wondering why we are where we are today. Forgive us for making our wives an idol. Forgive us for making our husbands an idols and not worshiping you alone. Father, write your law in our heart. I pray that that reality can be a real experience for each of us this morning. That our marriages can experience those boundaries that protect it from heartache and disappointment. Precious Father, I pray for husbands that right now should be in this house of worship, but are far away from you at home, and their spouses are here this morning. I pray for your spirit to bring conviction and revival into those husbands' hearts. Same for those wives. Wives that are far away from you right now, Lord, and the husbands that are seeking to have a marriage of intimacy and unity and spirituality and their wives are not willing. Bring repentance, Father. Bring conversions. Bring unity and healing to our homes. If our marriages, Father, are in shambles, our church will be in shambles. Restore us, Father. Build us on the word of God. Build us on that rock, Jesus Christ. Bless us, Father, with this, the greatest blessing you can give us. Thank you that through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit, you can and want to write your law in our hearts. Write it in mine, Lord. Write it in the hearts of my brothers and my sisters. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen, Father. Amen.
0: You have been listening to Ariel Roldan, Pastor of Cadillac and Lake City Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Cadillac Church at 801 East Division Street in Cadillac, Michigan, and their church service begins at 11 a.m. Or visit the Lake City Church located at 5970 West Sanborn Road in Lake City, Michigan, and their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. This program has been a Strong Tower Radio production.